Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. This is just out of morbid curiosity. Did you ever think you were going to die? I won't say daily because that's unfair. But it was a part of, it was an assumptive part of the culture. That, that it was just on the line all the time. Um, imagine for a minute your 18, 19, 20-year-old self updating your will every six months. That's not the kind of thing a 19-year-old thinks about on a regular basis. And we thought about it every six months. Um, so it was embedded in the culture, embedded in the process, embedded in the Ranger Creed. Um, enough to become comfortable with its presence in the room. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 1-size-fits-all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sonny, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your work uh, by way of your publicist who sent me a copy of your book, Selling Without Selling Out, uh, which was a subject that was of tremendous personal interest to me because I really wanted to understand what actually went into the process of an acquisition. Because I think that for most of us, we kind of see the headlines and the the million dollar um, you know, price tags and we kind of dream and, you know, sort of fantasize about the day when that might happen to us. But I don't think any of us really understand the reality of it. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yeah, so the the parents um, work largely looked like either work outside. Um, as an example, my dad's a horticulturist and, and master gardener. Um, they're teachers in the family, educators, counselors. Um, and here's how it shaped how I look at the world. A couple of things. Um, one, the, the scientific method, um, was actually just a core part of how we were raised to understand the world. Um, it, the question, the things you see in front of you, build a hypothesis based on those um, observations and then test and retest and draw conclusions. Um, and you know, that I think describes creativity to me as well. And so the exploring and expanding and pushing a boundary, um, and searching for deeper understanding. And, and so that showed up when we were outside. Um, and it showed up when, when we were inside, we were not much of a TV family. Um, you know, go, go read a book. Um, was a common day at home. Um, and so I think a love for learning and curiosity um, very much helped shape how I make sense of, of the world today. Yeah. You know, that sort of love for learning um, and the, that sort of innate curiosity, I feel like it's something that a lot of people lose unless they just happen to find um, a sort of creative path that encourages them or, or facilitates that. Why do you think that is and how do people get it back? You know, I think if, look, if I could answer the question on how to recapture that, um, I have another book in me, um, but, <laughs> but I'll take a run at it. Um, I think one of the starting places is it's, it's okay to wander a little bit. Um, it, at least for me, I find a good bit of joy when I wander around in a topic. Um, so there's a, a big difference between a structured learning environment and an unstructured learning environment. I think for a lot of us, um, the structured learning environments are extraordinary. And for some of us, me included, it just doesn't work. I'm, I'm much happier. I'll learn more and I'll learn faster um, with, with less direction um, and less focus on an outcome and more an exploration. Um, you know, a, a, a walk in the woods uh, is a different experience than I'm going to make it to the top of that summit. Um, and so my suggestion might be a, a little more walk in the woods um, and go explore the part of something that um, is interesting to you. And maybe that will bridge you to the other pieces. But it's what I do. I, I look, the, the Internet I almost feel like it was made for my um, brain type um, because I'm I'm really comfortable with and enjoy um, tenuous connections between topics um, and so being able to go all the way down the rabbit hole. In fact, I had a conversation with Tisha, my wife of, um, well, 20 years this month, um, about uh, wondering what life would look like, um, if we couldn't just ask Siri, whatever random question we happen to have today, um, which is yeah. a common thing in the Vanderbeck house. 
Uh-huh. Well, so there's, there's sort of two things at play here, right? You know, this importance of, you know, wandering, following your curiosity um, and without a concern for an outcome yet, you know, yeah, I remember writing this article on Medium titled How the Birth of the Influencer Led to the Death of Hobbies, because I think the, you know, unfortunate byproduct um, from, you know, sort of having access to technology in the way that we do and to be able to express ideas and to build things in the way that we do today uh, is the fact that people have become so outcome oriented almost to a fault. Uh, and, you know, as somebody who helps people achieve outcomes, really big outcomes, um, what do you have to say to that? I think when you go to apply the learning, um, there is some value in, in outcome orientation, um, or at least having some guardrails. And so look, I've got a, a friend, um, and, and coach that, it has this idea of liberating structures. Um, and I found it to be one of the most helpful things for me. Again, as an entrepreneur, um, it is easy for me to see a shiny, interesting thing um, and stop some other things um, or to take a hard left turn and to operate like I learn. And and one of the learnings has been um, the learning process and the operating process are very different. Um, and so this idea of liberating structures is if you can get just a little bit of guardrails um, you know, it only takes two guardrails to now you create direction mm-hmm. and you don't have to narrow it down on, um, some hyper specific goal that, you know, you must accomplish, um, this much weight on the bar by pound, maybe just heading in that general direction is enough to give you the structure you need to make relentless progress. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's been one of, of the learnings for me. Um, and, and maybe relearnings. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, I think it was Buffett said, you know, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, compound interest works on learning and it works on progress too. Um, so mm-hmm. for the the outcomes orientation, uh, my own experience has been just a little bit better every day. Really yeah. actually works. But you have to have yeah. some direction to know if you're even a little bit better every day. Yeah, I, I I like the idea of guardrails and you know context. You know, like we're having uh, people in our membership community right now doing these hundred day projects, and you know the idea is it's like, okay, is this something you can do in a hundred days that won't take up so much of your time that you lose the motivation to do it? And it's pretty interesting to see how quickly people are progressing with their ideas, even simple simple projects. I think just to give them that sort of cadence of doing something consistently. Yeah, you know, I think um, playing winnable games is an important thing, particularly with new behavior. Uh, And I'll give you an you know example in in my case. Um, So I was an Army Ranger, um, pretty extraordinary shape um, early on in my life. And you know, the story I tell is I got busy, um, aka I didn't want to, or I prioritized other things and stayed out of the gym for more than a decade, Um, and tried to go back at it a couple of times. and and the breakthrough happened here. Um, I, I took the idea of, you know, a minimum viable product uh-huh. um, from technology, and I took that to the gym. I said, what's the least amount of time I can spend in the gym and get a result, get an actual real useful result? Um, and the idea behind that was if I can get to that point, if I can get clarity on what that is, I have to be able to address that in a no excuses way. doesn't matter if I'm tired. doesn't matter if I traveled all week. It doesn't like all the stories. We tell ourselves lots of stories about why we don't do the things we said we were going to do. Um, and those stories make us feel better about why we didn't do it. And I wanted to set up a system where I could make just a little bit of progress every single week, day in and day out, and kind of tricked myself into doing it. Um, and mm-hmm. the trick was to find the minimum viable workout. Um, and, and for me, it turned out to be, um, two days a week because at worst I could do Saturday and Sunday, um, for an hour a day. Um, and, and actually at this point, you know, actually like three hours a week. Um, but the progress I got from never having, never stopping and just continuing the compounding was, was, well, it was life-changing. Yeah. So I want to come back to the Army Ranger thing, but um, I wonder, you know, when you were growing up, did your parents give you any specific advice about how to make your way in the world? Yeah, they did. Um, 
And the most important, lots of things, but the the most important of it was you're going to have to decide for yourself. Like here's all this knowledge and perspective available to you, um, ours, these books, other people, etc. Um, there is no default way of believing about a particular thing. Um, go and make up your own mind, draw your own conclusions, forge your own path. Uh, so created, you know, you get the combination of a, a bit of an independent spirit um, and of love of learning. It was uh, an extraordinary setup for being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So they didn't say like to do, they didn't necessarily encourage any particular career path or say, you know, you should probably do this or this. Because I think that, you know, the byproduct of being an immigrant is you get, you know, sort of very specific guidelines on, okay, these are the potential career choices that you should consider. And I mean, even the, you know, you go, you go back to structured learning. I think structured learning very much kind of puts you into just a handful of paths. It's kind of like choosing, you know, what you're going to eat off of a McDonald's menu. You know, I think it very much depends on on the person and what w works for them. Um, it, like if that's probably been one of the hard learnings along the way is that um, like what works for other people doesn't necessarily work for me and and, and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, definitely in terms of career choice, um, there really wasn't any direction there. Um, there was some distance there if the metaphor worked um, in that. It was there was a push to say, look, you're you've got a lot of capability. Um, please apply yourself in whatever it is that you do. I think there was a consistent, strong message about um, not phoning it in. Um, and actually, if you're going to do it, like go do it. Yeah. So, um, did you go straight from high school into the military? So I graduated high school and started college at 16. Um, and I was there for a year. And I just didn't really enjoy it. Um, I guess silly me, I thought I was going to do something, you know, it was something that it, that it wasn't. Um, and I was, I was fortunate um, that the high school I went to had you know, very small classes, you know, AP chemistry might have been 12 people and a lot of attention from, um, teachers and i was sort of ready for something new and so i go to college and now i'm in a chemistry class with 400 people taught by a ta um i actually don't think i really understood what i was getting myself into um so i had high hopes and dreams for the college experience um and it was not at all what i thought it was going to be and it's a, a bit disillusioned um a bit bored um decided i'm gonna go do something entirely different um, and so about the furthest away one could imagine from a, um, can't run a, can't run a mile, smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, computer science degree pursuing guy was to go be an army ranger. So that's what I yeah. chose to, it, you know, look, they don't tell you you're going to do it. What they tell you is, well, we'll give you a shot at it and the rest yeah. is up to you. Um, so, so that's how that, that all came about. So, you know, from what I understand from, you know, my limited knowledge of Army Rangers, just from seeing a handful of movies, which is probably not entirely accurate, it's a pretty elite branch of, of the military, correct? It is. It is. The, the dropout rate um, is extraordinary and, and probably one of those things a bit intimidating. You know, if I had known the dropout rate before I went in, would I have done it? Um, I'll never know. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, you're like, wow, that was that was pretty intense. Yeah. What goes into to the training and, and, you know, looking back on your own experience, because I think there's a, a pretty probably a good metaphor for entrepreneurs here. Like, what is it that causes people to stick and what causes people to drop out? There are, are I think, a couple of things um, that really make it work. And the funny thing is, they've, you know, 100, 200 years of some flavor of special operations units, maybe a thousand years in you know, history. Um, it's still nearly impossible to predict who's going to make it by interacting with all of them at the beginning. Um, in in this particular case, um, it turned out to be really two things. Um, unwilling to quit, no matter how good the offer was to quit. And calm under pressure. Um, so quite a few of the things were... 
um, situations that were designed to be extraordinarily stressful. Um, yeah. And and then so the the motto in the Rangers is sua sponte it's of their own accord. And the idea behind that is every day you're a volunteer. Right? It's not a thing you do and okay, now you made it and you're there. You have to wake up and earn it every day. And and one of the side effects of that is the easiest thing to do, the path of least resistance is to quit. So you get a lot of it. Yeah, I would imagine. Well, it's, it's funny. You're not the first uh, special operations person I've had here. Chris Fussell here. And uh, I remember when I asked him a similar version of this question, he said, if I had the answer to that question, I would be a billionaire. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one thing that I, I always wonder about, particularly when I've talked to people who've served in the military and, and somebody who is a civilian and only sees it from the outside uh, through sort of what we see on, on the media um, is what do you think that those of us who don't have the experience that you do misunderstand about the military? And let me give you some context to to think about that. So my, I think the there's a perception, I think that you know people say, okay, wow, we spend all this money on defense policing the world, yet we have so many of our own problems at home. Um, so what do you think that those of us who don't have the experience that you do misunderstand about the role of the military? That's a big question. Um, and there are a few layers to the question, um, some of which I'm probably reasonably qualified to answer and, and others um, I would posit are more speculative in nature. Um, but I'll start at the bottom at the most tactical. Um, there are a lot of people who know me that are surprised that I was in the military um, because their perception is that it's extraordinarily regimented. Um, and that is true for some parts of the military, and that is decidedly untrue um, for special operations. Um, in fact, that's where I learned the after-action review. Um, that's where I learned, you know, every man must understand the mission um, fully, where you had people that had been there six months um, being asked to provide perspective and insight to a group of 50 rangers that were going on a mission. Because it's interesting, you wouldn't expect as an outsider um, collaboration, support of opposing voices, um, those kinds of things. But but what we um, you know now consider to be these kind of modern or enlightened management practices, uh, they were alive and well in 1990 in special operations. So so that's one. Um, yeah. it, it's kind of not what people think it is from from the outside. Um, I'll zoom all the way to the other end, and this is um, speculative on my part with the benefit of, of hindsight. Um, the short version of you know, the role of the U.S. military is, is a bit of if not us, then who. Um, and I am in, in no way, shape, or form a fan of, of endless wars. Um, that is a, a topic in and of itself for, for people that are not me and a, and a much longer conversation. Um, but you do get a bit of cynicism from time to time. Having been on the inside, just asking simple questions like, hey, why are we here and what does success look like? Um, if you speak with you know Vietnam vets, they have that question still. Why were we there and what did success look like? Um, and I think we have become better and better at answering that question over time about what, what it is that we're trying to solve. Um, and it appears to be that we've got some new, new perspectives on how that might unfold um, and new tools at hand that, that could probably end with a little bit less deployment out in the world. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think there is a big role that, that we play um, that, that is a stabilizing force globally that uh -huh. seems expensive. Um, and it, the thing that benefits, you know, all of us collectively is, um, a stable environment. Look, when, when there are no conflicts and extraordinary, um, economic outcomes, like everybody's happy and that's good, including us. So I do think there's some payback on it. Um, I'll leave the next level of detail to people who are, are more educated and have more experience on deciding whether or not. <laughs> Um, flexing our military might in this particular country and time and day is a good choice. 
or not. Well, you know, I mean, you mentioned sort of um, no conflict and extraordinary economic outcomes. And uh, I just, you know, finished reading Richard Haas's book, The World. And it seems like it's been a long time since we have been uh, in that situation. But one thing that I was told uh, once, you know, I ended up doing a talk for a nonprofit that trains retired special forces guys how to transition to civilian careers. And one of the guys who picked me up from the airport was uh, on joint special operations. And I, you know, I asked him a similar question and, you know, and I said, you know, this isn't out of disrespect, but out of curiosity. And he said, what you have to understand is that the people on the front lines, people like us, we're taking orders. He said, everything that we do is for political risk or political gain. And that comes from, you know, politicians more than it does the military. Yep. The military does not decide where to go. Yeah. They decide how to get it done. Um, sometimes, sometimes they're told how to get it done. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So what I wonder is, you know, post Army Ranger, uh, what did you do, um, you know, and how did you apply what you've learned uh, from being an Army Ranger to building and selling businesses? And how can we apply that to other parts of our lives? So there were a couple of takeaways um, from that experience, I think, that that were useful. Uh, and and one of them actually was that that calm under pressure. Um, and just being comfortable with a bit of chaos around, 
Um, as it turns out, um, generally people don't enjoy their leaders screaming, yelling, throwing chairs, breaking down in a meeting. Like you've all heard the stories. Some of you have experienced them. Um, that leadership style does not create high-performance teams. Um, and and this special operations experience is very much a high-performance team um, experience. So that, so that would be the, the first one. Um, is is the ability to maintain um, some comfort in a little bit of chaos, particularly as an entrepreneur. Like if you think things are going to turn out the way you plan them, um, you misunderstand <laughs> how these plans work. Like so, there would be another yeah. example. Uh, you know, contingency planning was a core part of the planning. It wasn't really an add-on for us. The assumption was it's not going to go according to plan. Um, and that doesn't mean planning is useless. It just means the plan becomes our baseline for what we'd like to have happen. Now let's think through the things that could go wrong that would have significant impact on, on the paths forward and plan for them. And so we can quickly say, hey, we're moving to contingency two. And everybody's already thought through what to do and thought through it in, um, in a time when they were well-rested and well-fed instead of in the heat of the moment. Yeah. So, so that would be another one. Um, right. So I want to dig deeper into this um, capacity to remain calm under pressure. What I wonder is how does somebody develop that without necessarily going through the hell of having to train as an army ranger? Um, my, my first responses are unkind um, and, and come down to, yeah, this is not a skill that you're going to learn in a chair. Um, it's a skill that's built by being under pressure. I don't think um, one can meditate their way to this. It's helpful to be able to, you know, manage your breathing. And so there are a bunch of skills and tools that we're all aware of, like take a breath, um, you know, think through the next steps and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, and there is at least half of it. That's the inoculation has to happen. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Um, I think there, there was somebody a while back um, whose suggestion was um, to take a cold shower every day to start the day, just to be uncomfortable and get used to being uncomfortable. Um, and I actually thought that's kind of good advice. It's for a different problem. Um, but to be calm under pressure, um, well, I'll give you the ranger articulation of an, another topic that, that actually connects to this. Um, run to trouble. And run to trouble was constantly in front of us and around us. Um, you know, we might have, have called it run to the sound of gunfire. Um, not as translatable as simply run to trouble. Um, and so find the situation where, yeah, golly, that's a little bit risky and it's kind of a mess. And maybe I'm going to go step in um, and see if I can make it better. And you build confidence and capability in yourself and confidence and capability in the team around you. Um, and you begin to reflect on, on big questions like, okay, uh, this is stressing me out. What if it doesn't go well? What happens really? Yeah. Okay, and what happens because of that? And and this this chain of um, inference that we build about you know this is the worst thing ever. And um, my own experience has been that's been a really useful tool for me if I do find myself a bit stirred up to start to walk through and okay, well, why is that important? And how does that affect me? And so on and so forth. And often when I get through you know three or four layers of that, um, yeah. I'm able to step back and go, you know. I, look, I have a glib comment about this that's, well, it's, I'm not cold, I'm not hungry, I'm not tired, and no one's shooting at me, so everything's fine. Um, yeah. And underneath that, there, there's lots more to it than that. But um, understanding the consequences, I think, is an important part of that process. It's funny because I'm an avid surfer and I think, you know, to me, that metaphor is, is you know, the, the big days where you just get thrashed by waves is kind of like your ability to build tolerance for discomfort and take risks that make you, you, you know, you come back to, to a desk and suddenly things don't seem so bad, even if they're bad. Yeah, indeed. 
This is just out of morbid curiosity. Did you ever think you were going to die? I won't say daily because that's unfair. Um, but it was a part of, it was an assumptive part of the culture that, that it was just on the line all the time. Um, imagine for a minute your 18, 19, 20 year old self updating your will every six months. That's not the kind of thing a 19 year old thinks about on a regular basis. And we thought about it every six months. Um, so it was, um, embedded in the culture, embedded in the process, embedded in the Ranger Creed, um, enough to become comfortable with its presence in the room. Well, let's talk about what goes into actually building something that is big enough that, you know, you can sell it. Because I, like I said, I think that most of us, we get to read the headlines of the startups that get acquired for billions of dollars or hundreds of millions, but I don't think we see what actually goes into the process. So, you know, what is it that enables an individual to take something and scale it to that level? Well, you know, a lot of things have to go right. Um, and the same people seem to get lucky over and over. Um, so there's this, you know, funny argument about, you know, how much of all of this is luck and skill and timing and so forth. Um, and and the same people get lucky over and over, which tells me there's something there. Um, you know, maybe luck's not streaky. Um, yeah. It's the behavior that's streaky. Um, so So with that said, look, a lot of things have to go right. Like some things just have to break your way. Um, but that's not what usually gets in the way. Um, I think the very first thing has to be you're working on something that you care enough about to be willing to push everything into the middle of the table. All your time, all your money, all your resources, everything. Right. It, it is a leave it all out on the field. If you are not going to run it like you're running in the Olympics, don't go. Um, the, this is not a thing that is suited for dabbling. But dabbling helps you build a hobby that has some revenue. Um, that's not what this is about. So, yeah, you do have to pick something that matters enough that you're willing to do that. People ask me, well, why did you start data return? I had the same reason I started Satori. I had no choice. It was all I could think about. I was consumed by the thing. I was consumed by the world I could see that didn't yet exist. And I had to make it. So, and so, you know, I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I didn't whatever. Um, all of those things. And, and, Many, if not most, of the entrepreneurs I know, look, we like to romanticize the early days um, because they're so hard. It's the only way our psyche can actually understand what we went through and have a positive relationship to it. We we remember all the fun stuff and and you know have a hero's journey story here and there. Man, it's hard. And by the way. It's not a ton easier on the next round. Um, I, I would have thought, I have like, hey, I've done this before. Like, it's gonna be easier. No, man, it's not easier. It's really sometimes it's harder because you know, you know yeah. what's coming, and you're like, ah, oh, this is this really ridiculously hard part. Um, and particularly if you're an entrepreneur in a space where you're a bit ahead of the market, where the message you're bringing to the world is not yet well understood and you get to you know get the crazy moniker for a couple of years um and you have to be willing to just keep going no matter what um yeah yeah that willingness to not quit then we're we're, we're back around to that um there will be days when it's over you're sure it's over and somehow it's not you wake up the next day and it's not over it. I don't know if it's if the luck broke your way timing. I think a big part of it is you were just not willing to give up. 
you just kept after it um, and were willing to do whatever it took. And and so that here's a one of the points here. Um, I have noticed where I see people struggle with this. Hey, how do I build a business and how do I build one particularly of substance? Is to be unwilling to actually commit to really actually fully commit to I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make this work. And the second thing is this, um, and it's not about you. It's about your team. And that one thing, the, the difference between am I willing to hire extraordinary people and bring them on the team and give them ownership and you know abdicate responsibility for a particular domain and, and all of those things, um, one brilliant person that's unwilling to build an extraordinary team is just some rich consultant. And if that's what you want to be, like, great, good for you. Um, but don't call yourself an entrepreneur. Call yourself a consultant and get on with it. Um, and so building an extraordinary team requires the ability to hire people that are smarter than you um, and and learn and get calibrated on when to leave them alone. You know, I wrote an article about how to pick a COO, a number two in the company. Um, and, and one of my comments there was if you agree with every choice they're making, one of you is redundant, Hmm. right? A a COO should be pushing in directions where you're a little bit uncomfortable. Now, look, it takes some judgment to go, is this a good uncomfortable or a bad? And sometimes you just have to try it and see, which is my advice. It's just how to run an experiment and in a, you know, hopefully lower impact way to see how their judgment is. I think I had an experience with my my COO that like, I just didn't, agree at all with his approach to some things but i had enough trust in his orientation and his capability to say i'm gonna go along for the ride i'm just gonna see like i i don't agree and here's why but it would be silly for me to override it let's go see and you know what it turned out he was right and he was right over and over and over again on on some particular domains of of stuff and i realized wow i'm like he's way better than i am at that and the best thing i can do is to stay out of his way um, so if you are only, un, are only willing to hire people, um, who have the same ideas as you, the same perspective as you, um, then you'll, you may end up with a pretty small company. And on the other end, there's some calibration here. Um, if you build a team full of entirely opposing perspectives, you'll just argue all day long and you'll never accomplish anything. You've got to share some values. You've got to share some vision for the world you want to be in. If you're going to argue something, argue about how we're going to get there, not where we're going to go. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it reminds me of, of, you know, the way we hired our community manager, Milena, who basically runs our membership community. And I remember coming to her and I said, look, I don't really know how to do this. I was like, I need you to connect the dots with this sort of vague instructions and, you know, deal with the ambiguity of it. And one of the things I had said is I want a listener referral program built to create ambassadors. And that was kind of the like primary motive for hiring her initially. And you know, the program wasn't going. And after about two months, she came back to me and she said, I think we should shift gears. She's like, what do you want more paying customers or free ambassadors? And I was like, okay, touche. <laughs> and that bet paid off significantly. Yeah. Those, those moments are, um, they can be a little scary. And when they, when they work, it's like going to the gym, it just built a little bit yeah. of muscle and, um, you know, the learning, how to let somebody actually have some rope and try some new things is, is really hard. Um, and yeah. without it, you, you'll never build a business of substance. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because now I jokingly say that I report to her, like, you know, I just show up at our meeting. So she tells me what she needs me to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the actual selling part, because I mean, that was really what your book was about. And I think that, yeah, you really kind of dove deep into the whole idea of selling, but you didn't just talk about the mechanics. You went sort of into the deeper philosophical questions um, about, you know, thinking about selling. So, I mean, let's let's talk about sort of how somebody arrives at that point. I think obviously, you know, you have to have built something of value, which is what we've established here. Um you know, in the first part of our conversation, but what, you know, what happens from there that gets them to the point where somebody even has any interest in buying what they've built? Yeah. And, you know, maybe a little context is useful about where I'm coming from 
um, on this in that the first time I went after this, so, so I started a company in my twenties and took it public. It was a NASDAQ company and sold it and bought it back and sold it again. And, 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 you know, now in the investment business where I'm, I'm making, you know, significant investments in these companies. Um, and so find myself on, on both sides of, of that transaction or relationship. Um, the, the biggest question that comes to mind. So to your point, a lot of people can talk about like, what's the, what are the mechanics of finding a buyer? Um, and I, there are broadly two kinds of buyers. There are, you know, financial buyers. Um, so those are people who that they're valuing your future income streams, your cash flow, your profit, what have you. Um, and strategic buyers, which for any number of different reasons, the way they see value in the business is as a part of their business. Um, and so it could be anything from, as an example, in a software company, if I sell um, human resources software, and I'm a big company, and there's a small human resources compliance software company, um, I have the choice to go try to rebuild that functionality um, and sell it and hope that works. Or I could go just acquire that functionality. And maybe I'm not only trying to get what the software does, but there's also a lot of companies that use that software that I think I could sell my larger package to and vice versa. So, so there's this big question to your point about like, well, what's value? There's one way to look at value that's simply just look, it's a stream of cash flows. Um, and another way to look at value that is how does this change the world for the acquirer if it's a strategic acquirer? But here's the yeah. funny piece. Like those are tactical, tangible. I can put that stuff in Excel and and the people involved in those things are often looking at the world through through largely a lens of counting. Um, and it's easy for us as entrepreneurs to also see that, hey, I'm counting. Uh, and and my advice to everybody is it's the counting part um, is not what's going to make you happy or unhappy. You start to ask these questions like, well, why is this business important to you? And what role does it play in your life? And who else do you care about? Um, and all these like fuzzy, sort of uncomfortable questions um, about what's important to us as as people, not yeah. just, hey, look, I made a bunch of money. But for, for those of you that know entrepreneurs who have had an exit, um, if you ask them, many of them will tell you, wow, I wish I would have known blank. And there's lots to fill in the blanks. And a few of those might be about how to get more chips. Most of them are not about chips. They're about what happened the day after close. Like everybody gets super excited about closing day, closing day and the wire's coming and all this stuff. And let me tell you, the wire shows up and it doesn't mean much really. You look at it and you go, wow, that's cool. And you're like, but now what? Yeah. Like, what else do I care about? And for many of us, you watch your acquirer dismantle the thing. Remember, we started this with you have to want to see the world in a different way and you have to be willing to give everything to make it real. And then you do all that and then you sell it to the wrong acquirer. And what do they do? The corporate board begins to dismantle everything that mattered about your company piece by piece as you watch rich and helpless. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, uh, you know, raised a, a round of funding last year through Radio Capital's Venture Fund Pod Fund. And I remember talking to one of my mentors about um, sort of, you know, doing a Series A. And, and he said, look, he said, what you need to realize is the moment you start that, he said, it's going to fundamentally change everything. He said, do you want to go to an office every day? Do you want to manage a team of 100 people? Or do you want to still have the freedom you have to keep doing what you have? And he said, and those are big questions. He's like, you got to ask yourself why you want this. Is this about your ego or is it, you know, uh, about actually wanting to do that? And, you know, sitting with that was kind of hard to think about. It was kind of like, yeah, it would be great. Exactly to your point. Like, I think in theory, it sounded amazing. And, you know, in practice, it was like, wow, uh, that would be a very different life than the one that I have now. The things we think we want because we're supposed to want them because it appears that everyone else wants them are not usually the things we actually want. 
and that it does require some time sitting with that. I'm really glad to hear it. It sounds like you got some great ad- advice on that because you know the advice could have been, hey, here's how to negotiate a better deal, not the the hard question, the why question. Why am I doing this? What am I actually trying to accomplish? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I realized you, cause you know, even some of my friends said, okay, let's say that some media company were to, you know, acquire you guys instead of starting their own show, like just, you know, put under their umbrella at the end of the day, you'd still be working for them. And that's not necessarily bad by the way. So yeah. I'm going to take the other side of this for just a minute. Yeah. Um, change is not inherently good or bad. It's just change. Um, and so I've heard comments from entrepreneurs like I'll never sell or I'll never take on an investor or I don't, I don't have any debt. Um, and I find those interesting because, um, some of them limit your options mightily. Um, you know, debt is not good or bad. Um, taking on an equity partner is, is not necessarily good or bad and it may help you tremendously. Um, in fact, I wonder if your mentor had offered to fund the round for you after he asked that question, what yeah. would you have done? Yeah, I, I guess I have to think about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting you you know point out not good or bad because when you say that, my my thought is okay. Let's say that we were to have you know uh, a media company like a Vox or somebody like that say, okay, we're going to put you guys under our umbrella. I realize what that would give you access to is distribution resources that you don't currently have the ability to execute projects that you don't currently that you can't you know with, with the team that you have like there there are those sides of it too that i've definitely thought about yes and the point there is you actually have to f- like sit down and figure out what's important to you and i don't yeah. like one of the things i don't do in the book is i don't suggest these things should be important to you and these other things shouldn't be um like that's that's up to you as a leader and as an owner of the business um, but but I do suggest you have to be able to be clear enough about it to write it down. Um, I think one of the things you'll see me repeat over and over in the book, and and in fact, got so serious about it, I actually made worksheets for it that are on my website um, to to really help with the issue. If you can't write down what it is that you want, um, you don't actually yet know what you want and and what you're willing to trade. And so, you, to your point, like with with a big media company, it may be if your priority, if your number one priority is how many people get to hear the content? A media company could be extraordinary. Now you may be trading some things like ah, I gotta go to the staff meeting. Like another big company staff meeting is horrible, but it might be worth it. Yeah. Right? You go, it's not good or bad. You just go, would I be willing to spend an hour doing corporate bingo to be able to hit another million users? Maybe. And so the process is about going and exploring how do you prioritize across all of these dimensions in your life. Um, and reminding entrepreneurs, because the other thing that, that is a common thing is a lot of self-sacrifice, um, where you tend to forget about yourself along the way. Um, and even more so your family to say, look, you're, you are a stakeholder in this and your family is a stakeholder in this and it's okay to want what you want. Just be clear about it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I appreciate the the fact that you have trade-offs because I, I think that, you know, you sort of learn from economics, the concept of ec- opportunity cost. And you realize like there's not a single decision you make in your life that doesn't have an opportunity cost. That's the story about why I never sleep. <laughs> I value almost everything higher than sleep. It's my final frontier. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's these things are. Um, trade-offs and, and I, you know, prefer the language around priorities, um, Mm -hmm. as much as trade-offs, because sometimes when you find the right partner, be it an investor or acquirer, um, you find yourself that, you know, many of your priorities are actually taken care of. Um, so it doesn't negatively affect, I don't know, your suppliers. You may have a hope that your suppliers, if you got acquired, uh, that your suppliers all get to triple their business, which by the way, really happens. I've seen it happen regularly where the acquirer realizes, Hey, this relationship you got with the supplier is way better than what they were getting themselves. And all of a sudden the supplier finds themselves with an ocean of business. And maybe you're just not going to get that. Um, but they're also not going to throw the supplier overboard. So it's maybe some people that you wanted a particular outcome 
they're not going to get it, but there's not really a trade-off in terms of um, nothing bad is happening to them. Yeah. So there's one final piece of this that I want to talk to you about, and I see this, you know, often with people who have had uh, career and career-ending injuries as athletes, and that is um, recovering a sense of identity after you've had this thing sort of, you know, define your life for so long um, when you're no longer part of it. Uh, I mean, you've sold businesses, you've reinvented yourself. How do you recover your sense of identity? Because like I, in, in a lot of ways, like if this was done, you know, I, one, I don't think I'd be able to sit around doing nothing. I think that would get boring really fast. Uh, but, you know, it, like I also kind of don't know who I am without it right now. So the, the process of figuring out, well, I'm going to give you two things. One is if you just like get the biggest pile of money, but you're definitely going to have that problem because you sit around and you don't need to do anything and you don't know, you still don't know what was important to you, but you just feel unfulfilled. Um, like that is that, that story of giant pile of money, not happy is common. It has nothing to do with the money, by the way. It's everything to do with, you just don't actually know what, you enjoy doing and how you spend your time. And, and look, my belief is um, like part of the human condition is struggle. Um, that that process of struggle is we actually enjoy that, right? If if, if you always won at every game you played, um, games would no longer be fun. We do actually enjoy <laughs> that. If you take the time to figure out what you care about. From that, you begin to understand um, who you are and where your identity is built. And all of these questions that you're asking about, you know, hey, what happens when the, the business card is gone? And, and for, for clarity, we talk about this a good bit in the book. Lots of CEOs talk about life afterwards and, and even things like how do you introduce yourself at your kid's <laughs> baseball game and, you know, Sally, the accountant meets jane the ex-ceo who sold her business like, how does jane describe what she does now because she she's 40 she can't go well i'm retired um like exploring those moments of how you make sense of even how you um identify with what it is that you do in the world and and here's what what i would suggest is that many of us the thing that we get joy from is not actually specific to the business um, and might actually be a portable skill and might be portable to another business. It might be portable to how is it that you can help out people who are in the situation that, that you were in a decade ago? You know, do you think that the person that mentored you um, as they reflected on their own identity and lessons learned and all of those things probably gets the same kind of joy out of mentoring you that they might've gotten out of mentoring a team member in, in their organization. So, so getting at the, like a simple question, what do I love about my job? And, and by the way, some of these, like you need to do these questions by yourself because you cannot BS yourself. But if you just sort of go, well, that, that answer sounds whatever, that is not going to help. You actually have to understand what it is. So as an example, if, like the thing you love most about your job um, is the time you spend on stage and like all these things that sort of support you as thought leader um, and the company that you're selling to, they've asked you to not continue on. You may want to re like really sit with that, that issue. So the journey of rediscovering um, my hope for all of you is that you figure out what you like and what you care about and to find that identity before you do it, not try to go recapture it. Yeah. Wow. wow. Um, well, I have two final questions for you, you know, just based on having read your book, based on your background, I'm guessing that you have over the course of your life accumulated, you know, some substantial level of material wealth. And I wonder, you know, I mean, you've alluded to to it throughout our conversation, but how your own personal definition of success has changed um, with age and experience. So I have the entrepreneur's curse, which is also the entrepreneur's blessing. It could be better. Everything could always be better. Um, I 
have learned as time's gone by um, to realize that, okay, that one thing could be better, but not everything could be better because we have to prioritize and there's only so much time in the day. Um, but I will tell you that the measuring stick of, well, this, you know, X dollars and all that stuff, like, it's just not like, that's the stuff that just doesn't matter. Um, measuring how have I impacted the world around me and how have I impacted the people around me, um, is, is far, far more important. So in the micro, um, I'm going to tell you a story about, um, the first date I had with Tisha that says everything about like, how do I measure success? Um, and reminds me that, you know, golly, I have a lot to learn. Um, so she comes up to the door first day. It's the fall. I open the door. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? And I reach out and pick a piece of lint off of her sweater. And I, like, I, I know now that was like a terrible choice. Like I d- wouldn't do that again. Um, but that was the entrepreneur in me. Like everything could always be a little bit better. So when you ask me to define success, um, my experience is I'll, I'll never be there because I've always got the opportunity. I just learned something that brought me new perspective. I'm now able to see the world in a different way. And I see another opportunity for um, some improvement somewhere. I, I promise you um, one of the most disappointing days in your life will be the day that you ring the bell and nothing happens. I have friends and, and colleagues and look, this has happened to me in, in different flavors as well. If I can just get revenue to a million dollars, everything's going to be awesome. And they get there mm-hmm. and they go, wow, nothing changed. And I've got friends that go, if I could just get a hundred million a year in revenue, man, that's like my life's hopes and dreams are to get this company to a hundred million in revenue. And every single one of them, you get there and you go, well, how was it? And they're like, man, it was Tuesday. It was just Tuesday. It's like it happened and then nothing happened. And it was just, you know, it's like we're back to um, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Hmm. Wow. Um, Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? To make it unmistakable. You actually have to be willing to take a stand, right? The, the project that is either going to get you fired or promoted is unmistakable. And it may be unmistakably horrible. And it may be absolutely brilliant. And the line between genius and crazy is thin and hazy. And at the end of it, it's risk. Are you willing to risk? Which is the same as the entrepreneur instinct. What makes the entrepreneur? I'm willing to risk because I see a thing in the world that could be different. And so to be unmistakable, you have to be willing to risk. And maybe you're risking embarrassment and maybe you're risking ridicule. And maybe you're risking just the opportunity to be extraordinary. Maybe you're unwilling to be the potential in yourself that you could be unmistakable in what you do. And so find the opportunity to take some risk and take it. Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing both your, your candor, uh, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Um, this has been really, really thought provoking. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book and everything that you're up to? Yeah, so come to my website, sunnyvanderbeck.com. That's S-U-N-N-Y. You'll see the book there. You'll see quite a few articles I've written um, sort of through the lens of and for um, CEOs and leaders, as well as workbooks that will help you organize your thinking and get clear enough um, about what's important to you to be able to write it down. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.